1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: Real love is calling listen, Opens up your eyes.
2: We have an obligation as Christians to be praying for our elected leaders. We don't live in a monarchy, we live in a republic. So when it says kings here, just insert the word president or think about the congress or think about the governor or the mayor or town council or or the, or, or whatever elected official and pray for them because they need our prayers. They have a hard responsibility. Some obviously profess to know Christ. Others don't, but I believe even those who don't know Christ, God can use for His glory. This
1: is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through First Timothy. Do you pray for your elected officials? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you the importance of praying for those in leadership. Just because you might not like who has been elected doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for them. Pastor Gary reminds you that as a Christian, you have an obligation to pray for your leaders. Whether it be your president, mayor, or governor, it's important that you intercede for them. Even leaders who don't know Christ can still be used for God's glory. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you How you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: First Timothy chapter 2. If you'll take your Bibles and join me there. For those of you who have not been here so far in our study of 1 Timothy, the the key verse and the main point of this letter, again, I'll just keep repeating this so we can remind ourselves it's out of chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so far in chapter 1 and... In the first few verses of chapter 2, we've looked at three things that should define the church, and we're just kind of making a running list as we go through this letter that Paul was inspired to write to young Timothy, who was this pastor of the church at Ephesus there in in what is modern Turkey, and so far we've seen that uh, these three things should define the church. Every local church should be about sound doctrine, and you're not going to know sound doctrine unless you are reading the Bible and teaching the Bible, and unfortunately our pulpits are not aflame much. These days, with uh, the teaching of God's Word, uh, some churches have opted for more of kind of a topical approach and even have denied the inerrancy of Scripture and don't even teach the Bible, unfortunately, in some churches. But thankfully, there are many churches that do teach God's Word, and, and we uh, strive always to be one of those churches because sound doctrine is important, and you, you won't know sound doctrine unless you study it, teach it, and uh, together live it out. And so sound doctrine uh, is threatened whenever you add to God's Word, that's legalism. When you subtract from God's Word, that's liberalism. Or when you omit God's Word or, or whole passages of Scripture to kind of suit your own lifestyle. So the warning to us as a church always is be about sound doctrine, be careful with Scripture, teach it correctly and appropriately, line upon line, verse upon verse. So that's what we do here. Then it should also be a place Grace. Paul in chapter 1 talks about how before he came to know Christ he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was a violent man, but then he defines God as one who has administered unto him mercy and grace and faith and love. So he speaks about himself as being the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. He was never more concerned about looking at the sin of others than, than he was his own sin. And he says about himself, I, I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the chief of all sinners. But he adds there in chapter one that if if God can do a good work in my life, then maybe I can be an example to others that they would have hope for God doing a good work in their lives. I mean, Paul's, his own testimony is if if God can take me as a blasphemer, I would curse God. I was a strict Jew, but I was defending Judaism with a zealousy, with a a zeal that then led me to the persecution of Christians because I thought that they were a false sect and that they were defiling God and the standard of Judaism. So he prided himself in being, you know, one who led Christians to their death in persecuting them thinking he was doing god a favor but god got a hold of his heart his old damascus road experience and and then paul's life was forever changed he said if god can do that for me a violent man a persecutor a blasphemer god can do that for you and so the church should also be a place of grace where we experience god's wonderful life changing work of his spirit in our hearts no matter what you've done in your life God is a gracious, loving God. He sends His Son Jesus to die on a cross for all of our sins so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and have a new life and be new creatures in Him. How many of you are thankful for that in your own life, right? So so it should be a place of grace. And then, number three, we saw in the first few verses of chapter two last week that it should also be a place of prayer. So what I want to do is I'm going to read all of chapter two. It's only 15 verses. And then, and then we'll comment on prayer and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off. So in verse one, he says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles." He says in verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So if you weren't here last week, you can see why ending there and not teaching on this you know, leaves people with somewhat of a cliffhanger. So before I get into the passage that most of you are more curious about, I don't want to skip too quickly over the first few verses as well. So again, the third point about the things that should define the church is prayer. He opens chapter two talking about requests, prayers, and intercession, three different words in the Greek that mean different things, but they overlap, Requests mean to beg or petition. Prayers is another Greek word that means to ask with reverence. Intercession is another word that means to plead on behalf of others. And, and he says, I, I want you to do this for everyone. But then he gets specific and he says, in particular for kings and all those in authority. And we have an obligation as Christians to be praying for our elected leaders. We don't live in a monarchy. We live in a republic. So when it says kings here, just insert the word president or think about the conjecture or think about the governor or the mayor or town council or, or, the, or, or whatever elected official and pray for them because they need our prayers. They have a hard responsibility. Some obviously profess to know Christ. Others don't. But I believe even those who don't know Christ, God can use for his glory. When I mean, you look in the Bible and you see with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, certainly a pagan king, but yet God used him for the benefit of the Jewish people. And ultimately, through his revelation of, of coming to this place where, and, and I don't know, maybe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because he did seem to have an epiphany there after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had come out of the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar saw one like the son of God. And, and so maybe, maybe, who knows, maybe Nebuchadnezzar will be there. But even this pagan king was someone that God used in the lives of the Jewish people, to bring them to a place of greater surrender. And so whether an elected leader knows Christ or not, God can still use them. Whether you voted for that person or not, God can still use them, and we are still obligated to pray for them. They may not be who you voted for. They may not be the political party you belong to. That doesn't matter. We as Christians have an obligation to pray for those who are in positions of authority and influence. And he even adds there saying that it will help us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So pray for them. Now, verses three to seven, we didn't really talk too much about. So I want to spend a little bit of time here on our way through the whole chapter this evening. So verse three says, this is good and pleases God, our savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So I want you to circle two words there that are very similar. The word Savior that describes God in verse 3 and the word saved in verse 4. Okay, this is good and pleases God our Savior. We need to see and understand God as Savior and that His motivation towards us is that we might be saved and that's the other word that is used there in verse 4. And He wants all men. And that's a generic term. All men, women, people. He wants everybody to be saved. That's the heart of God our Savior. God is not selective in wanting some to be saved and some to be damned. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there is a part that we play in this in response to what Christ has done for us on the cross. God is always the initiator in Scripture. We are always the responders. So we have a part in coming to salvation, which is in responding to God's love, exercising faith, receiving the free gift of salvation, not because of anything we've done, but just because God has extended it to all who would believe, and therefore we might be saved. Now let me let me park it here for just a little bit and talk about this because it's important for us to understand. And here's another verse you can write in the margin of your Bibles, 2 Peter 3.9. Because in 2 Peter 3.9 it says that God is not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness, but He is faithful to His promises. He wants none to perish but all to come to repentance. So God is an all God. God is a, I want everyone God to be saved. That's his disposition. In fact, Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says that that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. I, I was on Capitol Hill attending an event the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. And some reporter, I was, I was walking down the back steps of the Capitol, some reporter stuck a microphone in my, in my face and said, have you heard that Osama bin Laden was killed today? Yes, I've heard that. Well, what do you what do you think about that? And I said, well, Ezekiel thirty three eleven, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now, for most of us, we, we bristle at that because, you know, he, he's a violent man, he's a terrorist, and he initiated terrorism in our own country. That said, God is grieved even when the wicked die. Because God wants all to be saved and 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 all of us are wicked The bible is not about good people and bad people. The bible is about bad people We're all bad people and there's only one good guy and that's god And he wants to rescue all of us. He wants all of us to be saved And so even the wicked he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants all people to be saved He wants to rescue us from this present evil age, Paul talks about in Galatians 1, verse 4. So, you know, personally, on a personal level, yeah, I was glad that Osama bin Laden was taken out. But, you know, on, on, on a bigger uh, plane of humanity, you know, God's heart for all of us is that we might respond to his love and, and to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, on this word saved, you know, I, I think to myself sometimes, and I want to be careful of this, As a pastor in particular, what are some of the words that we use in our Christian vocabulary that would be so foreign to a person who has no understanding of the Bible, no understanding of Christianity? I think this would be one of them. When you start saying to people, hey, are you saved? They'd be like, saved from what? You know, saved. What is that word saved? So let me use this analogy. Let's say that I'm drowning. And, uh, you know, when a person's drowning, that's when they will typically cry out to be saved. You know, if they're drowning, they're like, help, somebody help me, somebody save me. OK, so picture it that way. Uh, all of us are drowning in a sea of sin. All of us are separated from God because of our sinfulness. So we're all drowning and we need to be rescued. OK, but let's say then a boat comes along, you're drowning in the sea and, and somebody comes along to rescue you. Now, you can't hoist yourself up on the boat the stern or the bow's too high. So what you need is somebody who can be in the boat, who lean over and pull you up out of the water and hoist you on board. That's what you need because maybe you're too tired. You've been treading water and so you're drowning and you're ready to die. What you need is someone who will in effect kind of bridge the two between the boat that's come to rescue you and you to reach down and hoist you aboard because by ourselves, we're incapable of rescuing ourselves. So we need someone who will intervene and who will come and stand in the gap. Now this is a picture of Jesus, and this might be a really simplistic illustration, but trying to help people who are, or are foreign to some of the terminology understand that the reality is every single one of us desperately drowning in a sea of sin, the inability to rescue ourselves, what do we need? We need a mediator. We need someone who can rescue us. Now there are different words in the Bible that are used to describe Jesus in this way. We're going to see here in verse 5 that Jesus is referred to as a mediator that's one word in Job verse, uh, chapter 9 he talks about needing an arbitrator he says I need someone in heaven who could put a hand on my shoulder and bridge this gap between a perfect God and sinful humanity so uh, Jesus is also referred to as an arbitrator and in first John the Bible says that Jesus is also referred to as an advocate as an advocate. So we have these different words that describe Jesus as a mediator here in verse five, an arbitrator in Job nine, an advocate in first John chapter two, verse one. So the same word, arbitrator, mediator, or advocate can apply, meaning someone who stands between two parties to bridge the gap. Okay. That's what all of us need in order to be saved which leads us into verse 5 here. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Now before I focus on the word mediator, I want you to back up there in verse 5 and look at, circle the word in your Bibles, one, one God. There is one God. The Bible teaches one God. There's not a plurality of gods, and there are not a plurality of paths that lead us to heaven. There is one God, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ. No man gets to the Father but by me, Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. There's there's no one else except me by which and by whom you can have access to the Father. One God, one mediator. Years ago, I was getting worked on it in the ER at the hospital for an infected knee, and the doctor who was working on me, she, was, uh, she asked me, what do you do? She, as she's draining fluid off my knee. She said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor, and you know, as soon as I say that, you know, people people want to engage in some spiritual level i mean i've had i've had guys cutting my hair like what do you do and they've been they've been swearing a story they have made a sailor look like a girl scout until i say i'm a pastor and then all of a sudden oh i am one too really i maybe maybe the words damn and hell were you know we're recording verses i don't really know but anyway so she so she's drained and flew off my knees she's like what do you do i said well i'm a pastor and, and i and she said oh really she said i'm spiritual i said well tell me your background and uh and i, I could tell that she was indian and she says well i'm hindu and um and she asked me, she said, you know, what is it like worshipping one God as a Christian? I said, will you tell me what is it like worshipping over 300,000 gods as a Hindu? And she said, it's terrible. So I, I, just, I, I never know what God to pray to. I said, well, there's one God and one mediator, and it's Jesus Christ. And Christianity is unique in that sense. One God one mediator. So that, that word again, mediator, is the one who bridges two parties. We have a holy God, we have sinful humanity, and Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to be the only mediator between God and man. That's why he's referred to here as the man Christ Jesus. He is the God-man. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. It's the mystery of the incarnation. But the Bible teaches that God came and dwelt among us. God wrapped himself in skin. God took on flesh and became like us to die for us. So he is uniquely qualified as no one or nothing else can be to stand in the gap as the mediator between God and man because he is the God man. He's the mediator. He's the arbitrator. He's the advocate. And verse six, he gave himself as a ransom for all men. In other words, again, it's the generic word, men, women, all people, all humanity, the testimony given in his proper time. Now we all know this, that a ransom is paid when someone is taken captive or held hostage. There, there's a ransom payment. Uh, you know, that's that's the negotiation. You know what we've taken somebody hostage, we'll return them for, you know, whatever you want to pay, but here's here's the demands, and here's the ransom. Jesus paid a ransom for us. The word is used intentionally here because we were held hostage to sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sold into slavery. You know, our lives were you know our, our, our lives were chained in the manacles of, of sin. And Jesus comes along and ransoms us, redeems us, pays the price, purchases us from sin and death with his own blood. So Paul uses the word intentionally there. He is a ransom for all of us. And for this purpose in verse seven, Paul says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I think in part that Paul had to say that part about I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying because some people were so amazed that his transformed life. They're like, are you, are you serious about? This? Yeah, I'm serious. I, God got a hold of my heart. Jesus transformed my life. Now he's appointed me as a herald, someone who proclaims the good news of all of this. Now, verses 8 through uh, 15 is this whole section here that, that we read at the top of our study here about uh, the roles of men and women in, in church and Paul's instruction here. And I want to make a few remarks before, before I dive into this section. And I want to be sensitive and delicate to all of this. And, you know, it's times like this that I frankly would rather be a Presbyterian. Because then I could just hunt and peck through the Bible and you know teach what I want and avoid the other passages I don't want, or maybe that's a Methodist. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. No, I mean I I was I've done weddings. I've told you this before. I, I did a wedding for my cousin at a Methodist church in Arlington once and. And I was co-officiating and, and the pastor there told me, don't, don't you read those parts of Ephesians about Paul and what he wrote about women submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives. Don't you read that in my church? Is that all right. And then when the wedding came, I mean, I read it anyway. I, I, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? He's, you know, gonna, he's not going to interrupt the wedding, but he was, he was wide-eyed and uh, didn't appreciate it afterwards. But you know, it's times like these where this is why we teach straight through the Bible here at Cornerstone, because we want to give you the whole counsel of God's word. Um, I'm, I'm going to be accountable to stand before God one day. And uh, and this is why in James 3, 1, it says not many of you should should want to be teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly. And and I and I need with a clear conscience to be able to say to the Lord, I did my best, Lord, and, and, I, and I did my best to go through all the Scripture and deliver the whole counsel of God. And so this is one of these passages where, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little difficult, it's a little, it's a little tricky. I need to walk very carefully and tiptoe through some of this. I'm, I want to say a few things before we actually get into the text. First of all, there's no other world religion that validates and values women. ...like Christianity.
1: Discipleship is a big part of growing in faith. It's taking the time to be mentored or to mentor another... ...and encourage one another to dive deeper into a relationship with Jesus. This is a big part of the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Timothy... The subject of this New Testament letter Pastor Gary has been teaching from. The Apostle Paul spent time pouring into Timothy, giving him practical instructions to build and lead his church well. Paul encouraged Timothy along with teaching him, and this relationship never ended. Do you have someone pouring into your spiritual life? And are you taking the time to invest in someone else's life? It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for five minutes or five decades. You have something to give, and you always have room to grow in your own faith. We're so glad you joined Pastor Gary today to study the book of 1 Timothy. To hear more from this series, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or if you're someone frequently on the go, download our mobile app to take these messages along for the ride. It's always good to have sound truth from God's Word available to infuse your day with Him. Find a link at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today for Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul
1: That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not alone